Welcome to the Reasoned Roundtable, your weekly libertarian podcast that, unlike Congress, has an approval rating north of 16%. I am Matt Welch, joined by Nick Gillespie, Peter Suderman, and Catherine Mangu Ward. Is it hot enough for you, pals? It's a hot howdy to you, Matt. Yeah, Matt, it's uh, real hot. Thank you. Whew. I'm wiping my brow, but happy Monday. Suderman, I mean, like, isn't, isn't is. this your sweet spot weather? Isn't this what you spend your entire oh. life? No, no, you're a fall guy. He's I so forget. mad. Sorry. He's, you just, you just like poked the bear, uh, Matt. No, but he's that like was, from Florida, he's, right? That's, like, he's been trying to escape damp. Florida yeah. this whole time. It's never going to work. All right. Sorry for the detour. My ideal weather is 51 degrees at the hottest point of the day. We are going to get into an entire episode worth of weather preferences here in a moment. But first, are you tired of feeling like someone's always watching you on the internet, even when you think you're being discreet? Well, IP Vanish VPN is here to protect your right to privacy and help you stay anonymous online. IP Vanish enables you to browse safely without exposing your private information to third parties, whether they be advertisers, ISPs, hackers, or other types of ne'er-do-well. When you use IP Vanish on your computer, tablet, phone, or fun stick, all of your data is encrypted. That means all your private details, passwords, communications, browsing history, physical location will be completely shielded and without sacrificing your speed. IP Vanish makes you virtually invisible online. It really is that simple. Roundtable listeners who act now will receive an incredible 7% off with a little throat thing off their yearly plan, all with a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's like getting nine months for free. Just go to ipvanish.com slash roundtable, use the promotional code roundtable, and take your privacy back right now. That's I-P-V-A-N-I-S-H dot com slash roundtable. Do it today. You'll be glad you did. All right. Uh, say what you will. Hey, uh, Matt yes. is fun stick, a euphemism. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. uh, every stick is a euphemism. Um, say what you will, people, listeners, about the uh, tenets of the Republican-run uh, Supreme Court or the Republican-appointed uh, majority in the Supreme Court. They do have a tendency to kick stuff back, some issues at least, back away from the judiciary, judiciary or uh, executive branch and back down to legislatures, whether they be on the state or even federal level. The uh, Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade, for example, effectively through the abortion issue from the federal judiciary to state legislatures without at all precluding a federal law being passed. And a funny thing happened in that process. Clarence Thomas, in his very typically lonely concurrence, raised the possibility that the high court might be reviewing, using the same logic as Dobbs, might be reviewing uh, decisions uh, that uh, impact gay marriage and even sodomy. Um, that's when Congress... Yeah, it's a one-handed opinion by Clarence Thomas. That's, that thank you. Um, I have a good friend... You was a in, spicy Gillespie this morning. Uh, mm -hmm. I was... I was on vacation. My friend was the lead singer of a punk band called the One-Handed Readers. Uh, so anyways, uh, Congress weirdly did a thing um, last week that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. And we're going to be talking about in various stripes throughout this episode, which is that they did something. Uh, the House last week passed <laughs> with the help of 47 Republicans, including everyone from Utah. Uh, they passed the Respect for Marriage yep. Act, which protects the legal recognition of both uh, gay marriage and interracial marriage in case Loving versus Virginia somehow 
was disappeared. What about a plural marriage in there? Too? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, that's next after we uh, get to ducks, right? Um, that is <laughs> man on duck. Action. That is that, uh, be, that uh, is coming next. Now. I think you're, you're milkshake yep. ducking all of us right now, Nick. Um, so there are at least five Republican senators who have indicated their support, and a bunch of others are on the fence. It is entirely possible that Congress will pass. Uh, a, a law that enshrines an individual right. It's very strange. Catherine, uh, what is this strange new sensation I'm feeling? Can you describe in detail? Uh, and or am I setting myself up to be fooled uh, again that the legislature may be legislating? Uh, Matt, puberty is a time of many changes <laughs> and some new sensations may be I'm happening. Going it's perfectly normal. Through changes. Okay. Does um, that explain your voice this week? I think it might, honestly. Um, no, this is good. As as you note, Matt, this is like a, a refreshing uh, new look from Congress in which they try to actually do things and uh, in particular do things that in this case, you know, I think can be construed at least as limiting their own power, limiting the power of the state. I like that. I will say that uh, this bill produced the one of the worst articles that I've read in National Review in a really, really long time. And the Internet was rightfully um, a little bit up in arms about it. It contained this understanding of the goal of marriage to unite a mother and father's enfleshed love what? to the need of their offspring's security and well-being. Like, I want a divorce if that's what, yeah. Um, and then the threat <laughs> at the end of the piece is that instead we might further codify moral anarchy, which sounds awesome. Like, I love codified anarchy. So me and, me and NR went our separate ways on this one, perhaps unsurprisingly. You know, the idea that we are somehow at risk of losing the gains that have been made on gay marriage and interracial marriage, uh, you know, Scott Shackford at Reason and some others have, and I think rightly expressed some skepticism about this. But it is also true that sometimes those uh, little seeds planted by one Supreme Court justice can blossom as perhaps they did in the Dobbs case. So fair enough. I will, because you noted the Utah delegation, I will recommend uh, to listeners a piece that uh, Stephanie Slade did in 2017 called Christian Started the Wedding Wars. And it is it is a, a little history of the ways that defenders of traditional marriage used the law to persecute polygamists um, and how we kind of did a weird do-si-do on like who, who's who's backing what um, and and the ways in which the kind of fight over Mormon conceptions of marriage echo and are kind of a weird funhouse mirror version of our fights over gay marriage. Um, a really, really good piece and illustrated by pictures of wedding couples, including a groom and a penguin in a veil. So uh, just like go check that out and enjoy it and uh, get some perspective on the current debate. So the it's uh, good to hear the National Review is now standing athwart homosexuals yelling stop. Mm -hmm. They did. They've been doing that yeah. for years, Nick. It's yeah, fun. They never, it's they a never fun got thing off to do. The, uh, yeah. Thing. I wanted to point out, Matt, in my uh, relation to this, that in uh, December, uh, uh, December of 1996 in Reason Magazine, I published an editorial in favor of gay marriage at the federal level with the terrible headline, Wedding Bell News. Wedding like Bell call News? Out news. So to call out to the Laura Nero song, <laughs> Wedding Bell Blues. 90s? And this was 
headlines. 90s headlines were so fucking awful where they were all puns about songs that don't make any sense that I have, support a federal ban so on that terrible and this is in one of the many many ways that the internet made everything better where headlines now are descriptive and the best ones don't even hide the ball they just tell you what the fucking story is about and what the take is but so I uh, um, I am I'm, I'm guilty really glad to see Congress doing something I am guilty of uh Maybe even more guilty than Nicolespi will certainly both be uh, uh, cross-examined uh, by St. Peter pretty heavily about this. But I was like putting exile on Main Street headlines in the Budapest Business Journal. Every issue. It wasn't. If it, we get a tumbling dice in there, it's going to be tumbling dice or even like rumbling dice. Uh, but Nick, uh, I, I would wanted to, to ask you particularly about this. Unless um, <laughs> Budapest was like opening a casino or something, like how were you even talking about dice just a, tumbling I or mean, rumbling or grumbling they, dice? In fact, we're opening plenty. Fumbling dice. Plenty of casinos uh, to pave the way for future Rod Dre hairs. Uh, to come and and uh, and do what they're going to do, um, but uh, no, I mean, and that's not uh, yours. Uh, piece uh, is hardly the first editorial. I think the first one, the reason ran was like 1973 when we looked, Catherine. Uh, uh, like uh, I 10 think years it might ago. even be earlier. Than might that. be earlier, but I, I think that was it's the, 1971. Um, and uh, and we've been doing it this whole time. So you, as our resident old Nick, although I'm physically older than you are, um, uh, how? What is your kind of uh, balancing scale between schadenfreude um, at all the people coming super late to the party and gratitude that, uh, you know, public opinion has decisively shifted? Yeah, uh, I think it's great that uh, public opinion has decisively shifted. And, you know, it's really when did Obama flip? 2013 through Joe Biden, right? Uh, during yeah, the through, brain fart. Uh, uh, that might have been the last sane thing that Joe Biden said, although he attributed it all to uh, uh, a willing grace. Right. I think, you know, that it was a very special episode of willing grace I mean, that turned the tide. Maybe true. <clears throat> I think it's great when, you know, it's less important to be like, oh, you know, uh, we were talking about this decades ago. It's like when the you know, when the party gets kicked into high gear, just enjoy it. Uh, it's come too late. I think. um you know, or, or rather, it 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 would have been better, you know, in 1973, uh, for this to you know to have been recognized and for people to understand that if you believe in individualism, the government is supposed to treat us all like individuals, not uh, markers of a particular group or something like that. Um, so I think it's fantastic. I am uh, disturbed by uh, the number of Republicans who are not willing to say. You know, they'll, they'll come up with reasons not to vote for this, saying like, oh, it's not the federal government's right. The federal government has never regulated marriage or in the case of contraception, because that's also brewing. Uh, you know, they'll come up with some kind of fake principle uh, where they're more than willing to have the federal government do everything all the time, you know, all over the place. Uh, and then they'll come up with some reason to be against it in this particular case. Um, you know, it's I, I think it. Uh, this is also a uh, an object lesson in, you know, does does politics lead culture or does culture lead politics? This is, you know, all of this stuff, Matt, you and I, I believe we used a uh, completely appropriate Mr. T. Mm -hmm. B.A. Baracus <laughs> metaphor in the Declaration of Independence Bingo. to talk about how politics 
politics is the B.A. Baracus <laughs> in American life. It's the last <laughs> one to get the joke. Uh, Peter, and I think that is more true now than when some people may have remembered what the what the uh, uh, whatchamacallit was, the A-team. Yes. And who the various characters were and what they stood for in an American mosaic. If you're going to say whatchamacallit, you got to really do the old guy voice. Whatchamacallit. Uh, Peter, um, uh, picking up on that thread, one of the people who came out with particularly tortured logic about not supporting this was Marco Rubio, your good friend uh, from Florida, your uh, fellow co-Floridian or something. I remember not long ago when Marco Rubio was like a, a charter member of the Reformicons. Am I getting that wrong? Where it was just all about, we got to restructure government to help the family and the family unit and all this kind of stuff. What the hell would these people who've been all family focused and everything uh, not uh, being on side of, I don't know, family formation? And can I just say your answer must contain the word infleshed. Yes. Or engorged. Either wow. way. Nope. No. Come on, Matt. You just ruined it. This is a, a family podcast. So my favorite Clive Barker novel <laughs> includes a scene in which there's a monster that gets enfleshed. And that's that's what I got. I, I, now I've, I've met your criteria. So Fine, the, you were selling it. So the, the whole thing about the, um, the Reformicons is that they were in favor of economic policy support, which often, though not always, meant uh, forms of subsidies and um, uh, tax policy that were designed to support with family formation, which because they were conservatives, because they were in many cases, not all, but in many cases, fairly conventional social conservatives, meant uh, meant you know marriage between a man and a woman, and not same-sex marriage. And there is there is there remains a view on the right that the best way to support families is to support marriage between one woman and one man. And that the whole that like that's yes, right? That the whole that the whole idea is that the, the best thing for children is that to have a, a mother and a father who are married together and to be raised with them. And that, that like the goal of government policy around families, around children and around marriage should be to support that. And you see that, I think, you know, in, quite explicitly in the Freedom Caucus statement, which is really interesting. So they they the Freedom Caucus, be, you know, is, is looks at like here's. Yeah, the House Freedom Caucus has uh, put out a statement. This, this is, and these are the guys who are sort of like the Tea Party Republicans who who came out of that era, who sort of who at one point were self-styled like kind of libertarian conservatives. Not all, they didn't always use that word, but sometimes some of them sometimes did. And their but their statement on this is is really just totally gives the game away, right? Like they have, they've come up with some kind of, you know, silly procedural ob objections that are just totally trivial and don't really matter. And then they say the radical left has launched an all out campaign on America's traditional values and sacred institutions. It has weakened the nuclear family, attacked the norms of masculinity and femininity. And now it wants to further erode the sacred institution of marriage. This bill is both unnecessary and undermines the recognition of marriage between only one man and one woman. And that's the, like it, it is a reminder that even though um, even though uh, same-sex marriage has become quite popular over the last fifteen years and is a winning issue, there is still a non-trivial faction of the conservative right that opposes it and that wants to see it go. And I think that that you know you asked you started this um, 
this segment by asking, well, you know, are we seeing something strange, which is that Congress is actually doing something? Yes, in some ways. But what's happening here is that Democrats saw an opening to put Republicans on the defensive and get them on the record as opposing same-sex marriage and in a bill that also was designed to protect interracial marriage, right? And and this is, I, and that's not to say that this is a bad bill. That's not to say that uh, you know that I oppose these or anything like that. But th- this is this is a partisan attack and designed to reveal Republican uh, Republicans as being. On, you know, has holding a position that is against uh, the popular consensus at this point, uh, as at least as much as anything else. Catherine, you know, I do want to point out that the reason I got divorced was because Ellen DeGeneres and Portia Rossi got married. So, you know, the logic of the uh, social conservatives on this is is really rock solid. I mean, there's no question that granting marriage to gay and lesbian people uh, absolutely undermines, uh, you know, heterosexual marriage. I mean, like, you know, we, we can joke around, but let's not pretend that that isn't obviously true. And that that explains why divorce rates peaked long before gays were talking about getting married. Uh, and I will be insisting that our social media people clip just your like ironical pronouncement there and run it on every, you have that power. You can get so the, part Canceled. of the, part of what we are seeing with this is that the Republican Party and the sort of socially conservative movement is wants to use the marriage issue as a way of refereeing a, 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 politi- a politically refereeing gender essentialism and a sort of. I, I don't know if you actually want to sort of if you really want to call it like a, a classic or traditional since there's it's obviously doesn't you know Let's call it fully closeted. go back right but what they would call a traditional view of of, of you know male and female roles right and that's explicitly uh, that's made quite explicit within the House Freedom Caucus statement right and it's implicit in a lot of this and it is. It is at least as much a backlash to some of the sort of, um, uh, you know, trans politics that we are seeing in schools. Um, and this is a, uh, of a piece with uh, the groomer stuff that we have seen coming out of out of Florida. And, you know, uh, all of the sort of the the social conservative frustrations and, um, and in many cases, like they're they are pretty clearly actively repulsed by the fact that some people are not are 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 openly you know it's deciding not to play you know uh, to traditional or what they would think of as traditional gender norms and they and there is there is absolutely uh, right now a, a sort of a line of thinking on the social conservative right that in fact legalizing gay marriage through the Supreme Court not only was it bad that it was done at the Supreme Court but it has in fact had a series of consequences in terms of, well, you now you see all of these teenagers identifying as, uh, you know, uh, non-binary or even trans or LGBTQI plus or whatever the uh, you know, particular thing is. And they will draw this line explicitly. Um, right. And and this is and so there is this is an extension of the kind of mid aughts 
anti-gay marriage politics in which there is a there are a bunch of folks on the on the right who you know are more socially conservative who think actually this did this did degrade and destroy a lot of the you know social and cultural norms around marriage around gender around child rearing around families uh, in in maybe not exactly the way we predicted, but in a way that was predictable and was something that we said, look, this is going to this is going to change society in ways that uh, that that are hard to you know that that we don't like, um, and that will you know that that we are uh, that you like you guys are denying is going to happen. Catherine, um, there's another issue that um, is being uh, addressed at least a little bit. In flesh, in Congress, um, I don't know. Yeah, a little in flesh. Um, that often goes hand in hand with gay marriage and the in the discussion of things, um, and that's uh, marijuana. Hand in hand with gay marriage legalization. Okay, Nick, uh, marijuana legalization, uh, where the Supreme Court hasn't exactly been very active on that particular issue, um, and it has very similar kind of public approval. Uh, and now uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, himself, uh, the serial killer, is uh, with us with a C. He's proposed a uh, a five trillion word bill. I think that's the the final word count uh, <laughs> on that uh, creating creating some. Well, they ran out of numbers to count the number of words, right? Uh, uh, so it's it's just an estimate. It basically creates a, a big new architecture for yeah. uh, federally legal uh, marijuana regime. Can you explain using your grown up words um, why? Uh, Schumer's legalization bill is so awful. It is so awful. It is very awful. Uh, I will start by stating my priors, which is that, um, as you know, there are very few members of Congress or really politicians, uh, period, that I don't fantasize about murdering actively <laughs> all of the time. Wow. Social uh, media. And Go. one, <laughs> yeah, speaking of stuff to clip for social media, and uh, one person who I... Just going to add the Secret Service there? Yeah, Yeah, no, it's like, come on. One person who I'm constantly tempted to put on my, like, um, you know, spare when the purge comes list is Dana Rohrabacher. Uh, Dana Rohrabacher uh, introduced a marijuana legalization bill in, I think, like 2017, maybe. Uh, And it was one line. It was just one line. And it was like, the federal marijuana ban does not apply when the states legalize it. Thank you. The end. This is the bill we need. Uh, I don't think it said thank you. It didn't say thank you because it that would have made uh, hail Putin at the and, end. Right? And Dana Rohrabacher is far from perfect. Thank you, Nick, obviously, for just like sneaking in the middle of this answer to be a dick. But um, he is also good on space stuff. And so sometimes yeah, I think no. about not killing Dana Rohrabacher. But totally. uh, Chuck Schumer, right at the top of the murder list, his bill is so bad and each iteration gets worse. So uh, the current one is uh, <laughs> 269 pages. It contains high taxes that then explode to get higher. It contains tobacco-style regulation of marijuana, including a minimum age of 21. It contains uh, sort of vague, large public health powers. It contains several different grant programs to promote equity in the marijuana markets. There are a handful of Republicans who have made it really clear that they are open to supporting a legalization bill of some kind. And Schumer just like looks those dudes in the eyes and is like, fuck you. Like, that's what these that's what this bill is. He just is like pretending they don't exist. Best case, spitting on them. Worst case. Well, he's saying that if you support legalization, you have to give the FDA a huge amount of power, huge amounts of power. I mean, and like flavor bans. I mean, it's not clear how any of it would even work. 
And, you know, the way that tobacco regulation has gone is a very, very clear template for how this would go. And it's it's a disaster, except for that we have pre-existing massive black markets already. And so unlike tobacco, uh, people would just stay in those markets. They wouldn't even bother to think about complying with the FDA's desires. Um, Schumer has also personally thwarted the SAFE Act, which would allow cannabis businesses to use banking services, which is one of the easiest, most commonsensical things we could do to just like at the federal level, move some of this along. In closing, I will quote our colleague Jacob Solom, who has written really, really uh, consistently and hatefully, I would say, about Schumer's bills. Um, And he notes that all of these kind of extra things that are in the bill are ostensibly aimed at ameliorating the damage done by the war on drugs. But they would be funded, he says, by cannabis consumers who seem like the least likely group to blame for the harm caused by the war on drugs. And uh, Solom goes on to suggest that maybe if anyone wants to make restitution for the war on drugs, it should be the politicians and people in Congress who have imposed these costs. Amen. One of the things he points out too, uh, Jacob does, is that the first version of this bill was like 130 pages. This one's 296 pages or something like. If we don't stop this, in a couple of years, the entire internet will consist of nothing but the language of this bill. So (laughs) vote on it and get it out of the system. This is a sort of like, it's a compound interest situation, right? Like it's- What is it? It's a tripling. What does it say, Nick, that, you know- the states are laboratories for democracy. Okay, cool. We started legalizing. Yeah, which also, by the way, that phrase is is in one of the worst dissents of all time. So I'm not sure I buy. I don't want is the it? states to be I don't know the origin of that phrase. Yeah. What is it? Look it up. It's it's quite interesting. Um, so uh, maybe for a future episode. We have, uh, we've had legalization regimes, um, many different flavors of them. Uh, since 2014, right? And we've seen which ones work and which ones don't. And generally, the more like equity mandates and high taxation and bureaucratization that you uh, uh, put on things, as has been discovered in places like California, um, the more that the black market stays and you don't get any good stuff happening um, uh, that you wanted to do. And, and the legislatures have to come back and fix the bill. And then in places like Colorado, they learn from their mistakes and they go quickly to like, okay, maybe we shouldn't tax it as much and let's not make it too complicated. And let's just let stop like putting people in jail. What does it say that people like Chuck Schumer have that information at their fingertips and yet still come up with this? Uh, You know, what it says is that drug legalization, ending the drug war, including ending marijuana prohibition, federal marijuana prohibition, is not high on his priority list at all. And this is something, you know, I think reason in a lot of ways, a lot of the issues that we care about, things like the debt, things like uh, marijuana or ending the drug war, things like immigration, for the people who care about them, these are the issues, right? Um, and for people in general, they're not very high salient, so he can get away with this kind of stuff. Um, and you know, that's a real challenge from a persuasion point of view of how do you make people understand that the ending the drug war is actually something that would, you know, almost as much as anything else that could happen, you know, in a, in a short period of time improve the quality of life because it would change our foreign policy, it would change our uh, uh, law enforcement issues, it would change education policy. I mean, the, the war on drugs is entwined through everything we do. I, I used to talk about it as 
like the Cold War. It's a structuring device in everyday life. If you pull on the drug war thread, it, you suddenly see it is in every aspect of every level of government all of the time. But most people don't see it that way, including Chuck Schumer. Um, and that's, you know, that's the conundrum. How do you make it important to people who don't necessarily see it as important one uh, one um, and yeah one uh, uh, way yeah. that that uh, uh, has impact in ways that people don't normally understand and Catherine kind of referred to it before with the safe banking act is financial surveillance we have a financial surveillance regime because of the drug war that's it a little bit of mafia on the side too but uh, they're uh, intertwined tweened and twined uh suderman speaking yeah, of mafia they're in flesh uh you are a an expert on prohibition uh, of alcohol and the repeal thereof uh, in thinking about this stuff and in um, appreciation of Dana Rohrbacher. And boy, do I have a good uh, Rohrbacher story to to tell uh, at some point uh, after the cameras are Spoke at Reason's 50th anniversary. Great folk singer. Uh, as he was out the door, uh, as he was out the door in Congress after a thousand year reign. Great, great, great folk singer. Uh, perhaps the model for Bob Roberts, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. He was indeed the model um, for Bob Roberts and he is the libertarian troubadour whose epigram or epigraph opens uh, David Friedman's The Machinery of Freedom. This this is nothing but pure gold. I hope you people realize what you're getting for free here. Um, Suderman. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I have a very soft spot for the one sentence repeal. And it got me thinking, like, and like just I, as I do for that, which one is the amendment to make the bad one go away? Um, that was a really good amendment. Uh, we reversed the other amendment that we did the prohibition. Um, so uh, why can't we just have a repeal party, both in terms of like a bacchanalia um, where we just repeal things all day long, but also just like uh, politicians or a block of politicians that say, hey, we're going to go around and we're, that's a stupid law. Let's, we're going to repeal that one. And that's all you do. You just walk around with one sentence pieces of legislation or edicts or whatever you can get your hands on or ballot initiative, repeal the dumb laws. Can we have that? Was that a thing that happened back in 1933? So I think the the first thing that they would do is pass the Rohrbacher law. And then the second one is pass a, a follow up that just says legalize fun sticks. Yes. Yep. It's about time. I'm in favor. Yeah. Look, the, the, the problem right now, very specifically, is Chuck Schumer. There are other <laughs> bills out there, and Chuck Schumer is like, no, no, we're not going to do the other bills. I mean, it's not just Dana Rohrbacher, right? There's a, there's a Nancy Mace bill. There's a bunch of these that, are, uh, that may have some, we might take some issue with them, but they are, they are directionally quite good. And Chuck Schumer has managed to produce a, suppose, a so-called marijuana legalization bill that is that even if you are like the, the your whole project is marijuana legalization is so bad that it it is almost certainly worse than the current state of play and this is i think something that marijuana um, the folks who want to legalize marijuana should think about what concessions are you willing to make because this is politics and there are people like chuck schumer and there are you know we have to deal with the senate we have right and it's a bunch of old people who you know were resistant to this sort of thing for a long time and so to me just to to sort of rank order the bad things here i think the least bad stuff in this bill is the equity provisions that's not to say that i think they are good but a bill that just had the equity provisions and otherwise legalized marijuana would would be like that would be a, a something I think I could support. 
I think the second least bad uh, out of the sort of the three big uh, problem provisions, that's the, the FDA, the taxes and the equity provisions are the taxes. And I think the taxes are a real problem. Uh, just look at California's market. Because California California has kind of nominally legalized pot, but the taxes are very high there. And as a result, a huge amount of the, the pot market is still in the black market because the taxes are so high. And so if you're going to legalize this stuff, uh, then you really need to think about the, the tax provisions because the goal is to bring this stuff into the legal markets, not tax it so much that people don't want to participate um, in, in the legal side of things. But the real, the biggest problem, I think, is are the FDA provisions. Because the FDA provisions basically give a, ter a terrible, terrible regulatory authority uh, the like unlimited power to manage and shape this market and basically to say at any point that they want, well, we we're, we are going to effectively shut it down again or make it so small, make it the make it so limited that it can't, uh, you know, that can't really operate in any meaningful way, because that's what Chuck Schumer wants. Chuck Schumer doesn't care one way or the other if marijuana is legal or illegal. What Chuck Schumer cares about is whether the bureaucrats have power to regulate what you put in your body. And this has been a consistent theme of Chuck Schumer's for decades now. I mean, he this was the guy who went after uh, who went after like snortable uh, caffeine at one point. It was just right? powdered. We weren't snorting it. I think people were snorting it. Maybe. Maybe. I think very specifically, yeah, I was snorting form, it. People were snorting it. Yeah, fair. Like people snort pixie sticks. So what am I saying? I take it back. And he's he has just pursued these absolutely Dumbass cases against people, you know, like, you know, what what was it? The Four loco and right, which is just like, is that actually worse than Red Bull and vodka? Is this actually like something worse than, you know, even an it's Irish in coffee? It's a can, man. Oh, right. But it's it's because of the marketing. Right. And this is this is Chuck Schumer's whole mission in life is to make sure that Chuck Schumer and his, you know, his pals in the federal government have the power to say what you can consume and what you can't and what kind of fun you can have with, uh, you know, with fun sticks and marijuana and four loco and whatever else it is that you want to put uh, Chuck Schumer in your also body has on a Friday night. One of the largest collections, Google Chuck Schumer photos of uh, boob sweat photos mm -hmm. of any senior member of uh, the political class. He does like to dance I'm not at street parties. Nick, that, yeah. that does not seem like something that I am going to want to Google. Listen, you're the one out here snorting caffeine. Take, we don't know what you're up to. Yeah, you got to take safe search. You know, there's safe search on, safe search off. This is safe search really, really off. Yeah. Um, I, I would think, I would hope that this podcast of all podcasts would not resort to kink shaming Peter Suderman. All right, we're going to get to more fun sticks in a bit, uh, including our listener email of the week. But first, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Most of us are born with only one brain. And yet we do not necessarily spend time <laughs> what? focusing on how to keep it healthy. Most of us. Yeah. Uh, a slim majority. A slim Sorry. congressional majority. Except for Zaphod Briebelbox. <laughs> you said it wrong. Uh, we don't spend time thinking about how to take care of it, to maximize it, uh, make it work better for you. Uh, some of us do visualization exercises. Some of us play little online word games that we overshare on social media. Uh, and still others maybe convert all baseball seasonal statistics to 162-game season stretching back to 1876. 
However, there are some clever people, including people I know, uh, who've gotten there happily through this very podcast uh, by choosing to broaden their brain through one, uh, the use of BetterHelp Online Therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy delivered via video, phone, live chat, or any technological method you prefer for your third-party counseling. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can be matched with a professional in under 48 hours and keep trying out new ones until you find someone that really clicks. Roundtable listeners get 10% off their first month. Just go to betterhelp.com slash roundtable. That's betterhelp.com slash roundtable. Go there today. Hey, yes? Matt, can I give a personal testimony? Please do. For betterhelp.com, I used it for almost two years, and it was phenomenal. It's uh, incredibly uh, uh, flexible and responsive. Uh, really high, highest, highest recommendation. And Nick receives no kickbacks for that. He does for uh, none at all for uh, for hair care, but that's a different. And I story. only, I only have one brain <laughs> that we know of so I, far. That I know of. That I know. All of. right. Yes. Remember to email us your pithy uh, queries. Uh, to roundtable at reason.com. This one comes from David Lowenthal, who can be found on Twitter at D Lowenthal, R-E-P-R-T. It's like report without the O. Anyways, he uh, writes, Dear Roundtablers, what's an idea for a book each of you have secretly wanted to write? Can be on anything, politics or otherwise, but have never had the opportunity to or gotten around to and why? Bonus points if one of the ideas is Declaration of Independence 2. This time, it's anarchical. Catherine, do you want to go first? You have to spill the secret. This is your, this, you're asking for us to reveal our secrets. So it's secret no more. But Catherine, you start. Uh, I have no secrets because I believe that all nonfiction books should, in fact, simply be magazine articles. This is, uh, you know, Spoken I know Spoken like many, a real magazine editor. Many... Um, colleagues that have written excellent books. I value and treasure each and every one of them. But honestly, I just think all nonfiction articles is always the way to go. I am, of course, an avid reader of fiction. But luckily, um, because I am like favored by the gods, have never been bitten by the fiction writing bug. It does not call to me. I like to read it. I don't like to make it. So uh, I'm safe. I don't want to write any books. Nary a book. Um, maybe I will sometime soon put together a collection of great reason articles, which does not violate my principle that all nonfiction should be articles because this would be a book of articles. Would it be called this book is made up of magazine articles that could be books? Yes, that's you. Wow, Nick, your headline writing prowess I don't know what is you did just with as strong as it was in the yes. 90s. Oh, yeah. No, and I'll, I'll point out. Also in the 90s, I did a uh, an attack on Chuck Schumer trying to regulate cereal prices called Serial Killers, I, as Matt oof, Welch was. I was referencing, I have, referencing um, earlier. I have a very fond memory of the, one of the first headlines that Matt and I ever fought over, which uh, was a an article about poets laureates being removed from their post. And the headline that the piece came in with was unacknowledged legislators impeached, which is oh, actually a great good. headline. And Matt went oh. like, you get out of here with your fancy college on me he's, and tried to a write barbarian. a headline for this piece, which was which was just like some kind of pun on a song or something. And we, we were like, it was like a several tumbling, days. Tumbling dice. 
It was the, uh, several days of warfare, so uh, it's all the, bad. The name of the collection, which would be <laughs> the, uh, the follow-up to the great recent collection edited by Nick Gillespie called Choice. Um, that obviously, if, if Nick and I are writing the headline of the Catherine edited book, uh, it would be, uh, every day I don't write the book. Right, Nick? Oh, right? Very good. Right? Very good. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, deliver us from this evil yep. of Catherine poo-pooing her well, idea of all of us yeah. immediately going on seven-year book leaves. I have uh, two books that I've been trying to write uh, for a long time. And of course, Matt, you're familiar with the first one. It's called Jesus Only Came Twice, <laughs> an erotic biography of Matt Welch, <gasps> my friend. What's happening <gasps> right now? Uh, but <gasps> that one, you know, that's, you know, we're still working through the legal issues yeah, yeah. to even talk about it, <laughs> much less. The restraining order. So that and, one is yeah. in, that's in limbo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's in restraining order limbo. Uh, no, and then the other one that I'm actually actively thinking about is a uh, uh, a, a parenting guide uh, for my adult children um, to kind of uh, recap or not recapture, but uh, write down the things that I learned from my parents, uh, which are kind of few and far between, but are fading and uh, trying to uh suss up uh you know kind of how i came to be who i am and what are the good things of my childhood and the past that are worth maintaining and what are the things worth giving up wow i'm kind of sold right there uh suderman better be about booze unlike Catherine, i have been bitten by the fiction bug and i have long wanted to write uh you know an science fiction novel um and i have uh, a couple of uh, ideas in mind and they may still happen at some point but uh, i think the more relevant thing is that for several years i wanted to write a cocktail book aimed at home bartenders uh demystifying a lot of the um the the stuff that you see in the in the best selling and very useful cocktail books that i think are still uh difficult for a lot of kind of uh, novices. Um, and I wanted to write this for a couple of years and thought about a whole bunch of different ways to do it and ultimately realized uh, that it was going to be hard to sort of finish a complete book, um, just sort of time-wise, and that al also that it, it wasn't obvious that there was a reason, you know, for a, a publisher to kind of to take a, a pitch from me. Uh, and so I converted it into a substack, and a lot of this, a lot of the ideas from uh, sort of the, the book that I was outlining and, and sort of thinking about ended up in a substack. Uh, and so I am writing it. I am not writing a book. I am writing it as a series of uh, weekly columns for substack instead. And uh, you can get a lot of those same ideas. So you'd um, say that actually the book was was better as articles. Is that what you're saying? Wow. I'm saying that it became articles and that it probably wouldn't have existed if I had insisted that it be a book and only a book. So, uh, but shouldn't it be a book? I mean, I'm thinking maybe, uh, <laughs> Nick, like, you know, laminated cards. No, that would be great because you're not going to be like, oh, I want to make a cocktail. I'm going to check out Substack and then go back and forth between the bar. You know, you Back want check. that right? I do that like flip. No, a but you want flip month. cards exactly that are laminated that would have different recipes and techniques, Peter. I think you could, you, there's a million publishers who would want So there's different, I mean, that. like just, there, there's just, uh, it's a different format. And so you treat it different ways. And a, a book is a sort of holistic theory of things with a bunch of, you know, uh, detail uh, contained inside, right? And it's, it's, 
it's complete. And so you can always, you can have, you can, if you're on page 165, you can refer people to a, you know, a sort of a, a sub recipe that you've included on page 300 or a technique that you already covered on page 20. Whereas a sub stack is iterative and temporal, right? And it's, and what you're doing is you are writing a letter to readers each week and you are giving, and you are, you're, you're able to refer back to things, of course, but you're not able to refer forward because the, the next things don't exist yet. Uh, but it's great actually for cocktails in particular because people make cocktails, you know, what, uh, once a week or a couple of times a week, right? And you're sort of giving them a new idea and a new technique each week. And you're trying to build on the things that you have talked about before. And so you're sort of building slowly and iteratively a way of looking at making a type of thing. Uh, and, and and it turns out that the like this format actually is really suited to uh, to writing about recipes, but in particular to writing about um, uh, recipe systems, which is what I like, how I like to think about cocktails as sort of engineering projects. So um, this uh, conversation uh, reawakened a memory of a really bad idea I had once that I'm not currently uh, fantasizing about at all, but uh, it's an opportunity for multiple people on this podcast to laugh at me, uh, is uh, I once had an idea. You're so generous. Uh, for a... Uh, uh, detective series, sort of cheap jack, uh, uh, quasi detective series centered around an itinerant uh, uh, guitar player doing cover songs in tourist bars. So goes to various places. Okay. Listen to the groaning. Wow. What's he three call? for three? Wait a second. It gets better, Nick. Uh, and it's loosely based on the character would loosely based on it would hold open the possibility uh, without ever hinting overly much that it's actually um, Kurt Cobain who like ducked out instead of killing himself, staged oh, his own yeah. death. This is getting better, by the way. Sure. So he could solve mysteries. Uh, no, yeah. just no, so he could, he could peace out and uh, and just like play Beatles songs in 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 uh, Greece. Um, uh, but then through weird things, ends up like uh, solving uh, various uh, mysteries. It's all it's, it's garbage. But the important thing was that each one would be in a different location, and each one would have a title based on a Rolling Stones song. So the first one was called No Expectations, <laughs> and going on from there, and I should be shot like a donkey. What is the, where is the exile on Main Street? Uh, uh, it's, they're individual book. songs. Volume. In individual songs. Um, yeah, but where is it set? Where is it set? Uh, is, it, uh, is it the south of France? Uh, no or? Expectations is on, uh, on yeah. the city of Pelicus on the island of Corfu. Um, Are they all on in Greek or Mediterranean? No, uh, or there's like one. In, some girls. He's there's one in Paris. Trying, you know, there's an elaborate Puerto Rican girl trafficking ring uh, in the volume. Some girls that he has to crack. Sounds like someone else has some pretty good ideas about this series, Nick Gillespie. Uh, yeah. Anyways, this is not the answer to the question. Um, this my answer to the question I came up with because I was. Uh, uh, <laughs> That is not your yeah, answer, because um, I <laughs> sure sounded like an yep. answer. It, yeah, oh, is that Peter that Peter Suderman we uh, criticizing someone we for coming up with two album, answers to one question? Really? That's what we're we doing. We were three album mm. cuts away from putting uh, Peter and Catherine into a coma. Yeah, uh, this so this it, one. Come on, uh, come on. I need you guys to workshop uh, the main headline <laughs> on it. Um, uh, it is very nice, Nick. I uh, recently appeared on a uh, a podcast called. Uh, gutting the sacred cow as uh, uh, comedians uh, get someone on to to talk uh, trash about a beloved movie and try to convince the hosts that they don't like it as much as they think they do. And I went on uh, to talk about the movie Field of Dreams, which I've always hated. Um, and, uh, and I hadn't watched it in a long time. Not just time. the worst baseball movie, the worst movie ever. 
See, yeah. uh, and so uh, I got to think, and, and like, and I rewatched it, and there were like brand new vistas of awfulness and import, um, and kind of insidious nostalgia. I think it's what killed Ray Liotta. What do you think, Matt Welch? Uh, that's self-evident. The accumulated uh, shame of being in that movie, as Shoeless Joe Jackson. So, uh, it, it, my idea is a uh, the subhead of the book is called "How Phony Nostalgia Poisoned the National Pastime." Oh, that's that's good, right? Yeah, that's- but is it called "Field of Screams"? Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> is it? Is I it? I'm that. not sure. That's that might be a little great, bit too strong. Yeah. Um, so that's my idea. All right, we. Wow. This is just all gone. Uh, I, w- um, I want to read that book. Yeah, see, because I want to read the Kurt Cobain detective novels. Me too. Those sound better. Uh, is yeah. it uh, you? You end cap like is the first chapter though is a foreword about the bad news bears, and then the the final afterward after we're shamed about baseball, it's uh, the uh, bad news bears breaking training or going breaking to training, Japan. Yeah. The one uh, with there'll Tony be no Curtis, question. Uh, there'll right? be no question about which of those uh, sides of the uh, the polls that I'll go on. But uh, no, it is actually interesting. I've written probably. 50,000 words at reasonandreason.com over the years having to do somehow with how nostalgia in baseball has created bad public policy and all kinds of weird pol- political posturing. Lots of it uh, with, with senators quoting from the field of dreams. That's really California's uh, crazy. decline starts with angels in the outfield, right? That's, Danny Glover uh, smuggling in his, you know, crypto socialism <sighs> into, you know, Gene Autry's team. That should be America's All right, team. Catherine, save us from me or nick talking at least for the next 10 seconds and what have you been consuming i hope it's air bud too (laughs) other than your own vomit over the past 25 seconds or so (laughs) this is is really an episode i have i have been been consuming uh first of all another successful spacex launch which i feel compelled to continue to remind you people about um and more importantly more success another successful spacex um vertical landing and retrieval on a shortfall of gravitas. But uh, the book that I read was The End of Eternity by Isaac Asimov. I'm like getting back to my roots. And I was at the library and uh, wandered over to the science fiction section. And, you know, great thing about Isaac Asimov, he's right there at the beginning. He's easy to find. And uh, I do think I might be wrong about this, and I'm sure Suderman will correct me if I am. But uh, this is... Um, this book is not usually published as a standalone. It, it's in collections and stuff, but I had not seen uh, this as its own edition. This one that I picked up seems to have come out in 2020. And uh, it's really very good. It's a, the it's a time travel story. It's a multiverse-ish story. Uh, it, uh, you know, feels still very current, very fresh. And, um, it's Asimov trying more. So I think it's a, a maybe a relatively early career book for him. It's him trying yep, a little more than usual. Yep, see, he's there for us, um, to, um, really characterize his main character and give them some kind of complex motivations, which I, uh, enjoyed a lot. I generally prefer his characterization of his robot characters, but, um, but this is this is a good one. So if you have somehow missed the end of eternity, uh, this book is also loosely tied into the Foundation series, which is not my fave Asimov. But um, if you are a person who uh, has read any Asimov, it is likely the Foundation series. And if so, um, this book will, uh, you know, you can kind of jump off of that and enjoy this book, and you will have some some memories from the Foundation series of ways that this book makes sense. But love a time travel book. Love a um, 
meditation really on the nature of risk. Um, you know, what does it what does it mean to sort of um, be calculatedly uncautious from time to time? So suggested a lot. Nick, what have you been consuming? Uh, well, I was going to uh, lead with the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once, uh, which came out earlier this year from the uh, co-directing, producing creative team Daniels. Uh, but in fact, Kurt Loder reviewed it for us when it came out, and Catherine Mangu Ward has already recommended it. It is fantastic. It is indescribable, and it's the best movie that I've seen in years. Um, I really, really profoundly uh, want to say everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, but my actual pick, Peter Suderman, is <laughs> The Kingdoms of Savannah by George Dawes Green. It's a, a mystery, a murder mystery thriller set in savannah georgia by george dawes green he's a novelist he wrote the juror which he will admit was made into one of the worst movies ever uh with demi moore um and uh, but he's a great writer he's a great novelist he's also the founder of the moth the uh roving storytelling event and podcast that is gigantic for everybody pretty much under the age of about 50 or 55 um, and he's also the subject of uh, the next Reason Speakeasy that takes place on Wednesday, July 27th in New York City at the Sheen Center, not named for Martin Sheen, but for uh, Bishop Sheen. Uh, go to reason.com slash events to get uh, details on that. And you'll learn a little bit more about the kingdoms of Savannah. It's an excellent novel about power, race, uh, society, economics, uh, and the way the past intrudes on the present, whether we like it or not. So The Kingdoms of Savannah by George Dawes Green. All right. Uh, Mr. Suderman. I will second or third or fourth the everything, everywhere, all at once recommendation because it is the best movie I've seen this year and maybe in several years. But uh, the movie I saw this weekend is my second favorite movie of the year. It is Nope, the new film from Jordan Peele. It is an alien invasion horror film. Uh, this is from uh, the director of Get Out and Us, both of which I really liked. Um, I, nope was somewhat divisive. Uh, if you look at the audience score, um, there's a company that sort of produces, that like polls audiences on movies opening weekend. It got a B, and a B is not a great score uh, uh, for, a, for an audience score. Critics have generally liked it, but this is one that I think is going to be somewhat divisive and polarizing. Not everyone is going to kind of take to it, in part because this movie is a little bit messy. And But I think the, I, but the mess is part of what makes it work. Um, just like with us, it is not reducible to a, you know, 2022 Twitter length headline. And that's what I like about this movie is that is that it is a socially aware and kind of politically conscious film about the profiting from, you know, from violent spectacle and about the history of race in filmmaking and a, a bunch of other stuff. But it's not a movie that sort of beats you over the head with, you know, with a like a sermon monologue at the end where you can just say, okay, that's what that movie was about. That's what we have op-eds for. That's like, it's not bad to have a, a single clear thesis for a piece of writing, but movies can do something else. And they, which is that they can, and stories can do something else, which is that they can 
They can explore a tangle of ideas without actually settling on one specific, you know, opinion or or sort of take uh, that that comes out of it. And that's a big part of what makes Nope so great is its lack of reducibility. That sort of prismatic sense that you, like this is about a bunch of different things, and Jordan Peele isn't trying to tell you what to think necessarily, or he's trying to maybe push you in a certain direction, but not but not leave you in an, leave every single viewer in exactly the same place. And then on top of that, this is just a a beautiful, uh, incredibly engaging and watchable, big budget, sort of uh, not quite, you know, Marvel size budget. This is about a $70 million film, but big spectacle of a movie. And it was shot by um, uh, 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 the cinematographer who has worked with Christopher Nolan a bunch of times, uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema, who has a just a great cinematographer name, shot using IMAX cameras. And so this movie just has a kind of scale to it, uh, a sense of epic awe and spectacle that I, I just loved, in part because to the extent that you can boil this movie down to a single idea, it is about it's about marginalized people as sort of black folks in the in the entertainment industry who have always uh, who have always been there and always been present but never gotten credit and so this is a movie about a, a, a pair a, a black brother and a and, and a, a, a his sister who are trying to get a photo of a UFO and like what they want is to get credit for it. They want to be on Oprah. They want to be the ones who took the photo to prove that it is there. And like that's and and that's the quest is they want to get credit for having taken the most crazy, biggest, most insane photo of a real life UFO ever. And so then the movie actually delivers on holy crap, these are these are just insane images that Take over the screen, take over your mind, and actually sort of like actually live up to that thing that they are tr- that they themselves are aspiring to within the film. Anyway, it's fantastic. I totally fell for this movie. Uh, it is I strongly recommend it. It's the kind of thing that I will want to watch um, multiple times, uh, and I think a lot of listeners are likely to enjoy it as well. Thank you, Peter. That was illuminating. Uh, so my consumption, Nick Gillespie, this weekend was for the first time. In my young life, uh, I uh, attended the induction ceremony at baseball's uh, National Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, in beautiful Cooperstown, New York. And so I watched the uh, ceremony on a nice field, um, like just grassy knoll, field of a field, a field of, of dreams, dreams, if you will. Uh, watched the induction ceremony of. Let's see if I can remember everyone in more or less order. Bud Fowler. 19th century Negro Leagues pioneer, but also he played in the major leagues or played in in integrated baseball back then. Uh, Buck O'Neill, Gil Hodges, uh, Jim Hmm. Cott, um, Orestes, a.k.a. Mini Minoso, uh, Tony, uh, real name Pedro Oliva. And I think there was the seventh. Wow. Oh, yeah. The one everyone was there to see, which was uh, David Ortiz, big poppy for a Red Sox fame. I'm yeah. here to tell you people who are baseball fans, but even those who are not necessarily big baseball fans, it is such a great thing to do. It's really, really fun. And of course, it helps that you're a big baseball fan, but uh, it's just a great, you know, I don't know how many people were there, 20,000, 10,000. Um, and they're like all from every possible walk of life. There's tons of Dominican flags for Big Poppy. Um, and his speech was really great, half in Spanish, half in English. There's a recurring theme throughout the proceedings because there's so much connections to Cuba, both uh, Minoso yeah. and uh, Tony Oliva. 
um, uh, uh, came from Cuba, and it's very much part of their stories. They're among the first. In fact, Minoso yeah. was the first black-skinned Latin Latin American player who, to play, and he, uh, you know, his career was truncated yeah. because of racism and, and idiocy. Uh, disgusting. Uh, yeah, I mean, awful. And uh, and you know, they called him Mini because I mean, there's uh, actually I wrote a piece uh, 20 years ago for ESPN. Uh, dot com about the Cuban senators, about all these Cuban uh, Im- uh, immigrants who came in and played for the last place Washington senators in the 50s. Then the senators moved to, the tw- to Minnesota in the 60s and they win a bunch of games because of the Cubans, including Tony Oliva, who was inducted this time. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, as uh, as part of that uh, process, that first wave of people who came in um, were all given like fake names. They're all called Chico. I saw Nick Gillespie and I'm yeah. so glad to torture Catherine and Peter with this. Uh, and there's nothing you can do about it yeah. right now uh, except to sit no. there silently. Just sit there in silence. <laughs> and bear it. Uh, there's a... Um, uh, yeah. It's like the national anthem we, playing. You can't do anything. You just got to sit there and We reposted it. my piece with a new intro over at Diplo Media and illustrated it with a, uh, a, a one of those baseball cards that have three players on it and three uh nick you'll appreciate uh their names um uh one was uh uh, uh tony oliva the other was bob clemente <laughs> yeah. uh, which is what of they course. called roberto clemente uh, uh yeah. not even for very long and the other one was chico cardenas which they apparently tried to put on leo wow. cardenas who most everyone knows is leo now but everyone was called chico everyone was given a new name yeah. they were called mini these great uh proud players anyways uh Baseball fans do it. I am pretty much dedicated to yeah. going there for the full weekend. I just drove up and drove down uh, on the uh, on the Sunday ceremony. It is a wonderful American and trans American uh, kind of celebration. Fun. It's just great to see humans. It's a beautiful town. Uh, I haven't I haven't Cooper's only drove through, wonderful. Uh, but it seems really really yeah. nice. And I'd look forward to actually visiting the Hall of Fame Museum, which I haven't done before. And it's kind of that's it's you can't really do that during the. Uh, um, uh, the the weekend because it's pretty weekend. Uh, crazy up there. It's a town of two thousand people. Like, Matt, can yeah, I ask sure. you a couple yes, of questions? Why was why was there so few current players? Uh, there's certainly Jim Kitty Cott deserves to be in. He deserved to be in years uh, ago. If Burt Blylevin is in, Jim Cott deserves. I, to be I think Blylevin's so clearly superior. But uh, but, but um, no, that's the. But they're both Dutch, they're right? Veteran. Uh, they both are like uh, you know weird uh, Netherlands. Blylevin actually names born, uh, at the very uh, least in the yeah. Netherlands. Um, yeah, there's a logjam uh, on the current players list, um, largely because there are Kurt Schilling uh, yeah. and Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are still getting a lot of votes, but not quite enough to uh, be ele- elected right. for uh, the Hall of Fame. Two of the three are associated with steroids yeah, yeah. and the third is just a horse's ass and the other one is just a douche but bag, like yeah. all clearly deserving i think shilling is very very deserving all of them are two-thirds of them bleeding yes uh famously bleeding at various points they're in their definitely career, possibly because of steroids. they're definitely bleeders anyways it is a marvelous event i really plan yeah. on going basically every year and i'm hopefully for my upcoming book field of screams <laughs> with an intro written by Catherine yeah. mangu ward um <laughs> yeah <laughs> I will be doing some research up there because why the hell not? Okay, that's all the time we have for blathering on on this particular podcast. Thanks for listening. Go to all of our podcasts, including The Reason Rundown with Peter Suderman, The Reason Whatever It Is, The Interview with Nick uh, Gillespie. Also, uh, this, Yeah, The Reason Interview. The Speakeasy is his live events. There's the Soho Forum. Just go to Reason.com po- podcast. You don't have to listen to me. Talk about them all. And if you like what we do as an institution, please consider going to Reason.com slash 
donate and give us some money because then we spend it on talking about baseball. And I know you all love that. Okay, we'll see you next week uh, with even better technology.